The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Dynamic Healing with two experts in chronic pain, David Hanscom and Les Aria. This podcast will show you how to unlock your body's ability to heal. Just breathe and learn how to rewire your brain and break free from chronic pain. Welcome to Dynamic Healing Podcast. I'm Les Aria. And I'm David Hanscom. Well, folks, today, hey, David, is, is it Valentine's? Because I feel love is in the air. Because of my pink shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, audience. So today's topic is on... This is the title of today's topic, that love takes up where pain leaves off. And the real purpose of this podcast is really to show you the implications and the benefits of how love actually does help modulate pain. It really does help. And when all else fails, there's always love. So the quote today is, love is always bestowed as a gift, freely, willingly, and without expectation. I'm going to say that again, without expectation. And uh, it's Leo um, Buscalia. And so, and we also have been talking about Dr. Anthony DeMello. You know, the way to love is actually the way to awareness. So the key to love is being becoming aware of your needs and being aware of those needs around you. And we're going to have about love and also a topic about not discussing your pain in the same sentence because... When you're discussing your pain, chatting to the world about your complaints, this, this, and this, you've lost awareness of other people's needs, and you've actually lost awareness of your own, own needs. So we're going to focus on love, but keep in the back of your mind that love is sort of the antithesis of being self-centered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely great, David. You're right about that. And how about we just kind of hop right into it? And, um, you know, when I was doing this research here, David, and I were doing this on, on the topic of love, it is so complex, uh, very much like the mind when you do research on what is the mind and all those um, factors. What, what I came across is no one can really agree on the true definition of love. And that makes sense. For this podcast, we've basically grouped love into five kinds of love. So again, this is our rendition of it. So hopefully you enjoy it. So David and the audience, there are five kinds of love that we've kind of um, come across and experienced. One is the most common one we all experience called passionate love, also known as romantic love. And then we have the four others, family love, friendship love, Mankind love, but maybe the proper PC way of saying that is human race and anything on earth. So sort of uh, the human race, the love for the human race and things on this earth. And then the fifth one, and perhaps a very important part that relates to chronic medical conditions and chronic pain, trauma, depression, anxiety, self-love, passionate love, family love, friendship love, mankind love, and self-love. 
So, you know, this is a tricky topic for me because I did not come from a loving, nurturing background. In fact, it was sort of the opposite. So, you know, there's books written I love. These are definitions are interesting. They're also extremely interactive because it's pretty hard to have love for other people if you don't have self-love. And I've talked to thousands of patients now, so has Dr. Arya, maybe more than I have, is that this self-critical voice is not, it's just torturing people. And what it does, it wires your physiology in a really terrible way. So you have self-love, which is probably number one, but then what happens with this passionate love that we'll talk about later, which is actually a, what we call a positive transference. But what happens with passionate love, which is all over the radio, all over TV, this sort of the ideal love, it's actually a transference where all of a sudden this person situation brings out love for yourself because it triggers self-love. So, but the problem is it's a transference. So you feel great, you feel perfect, whatever it is. So for instance, you look at a baby, almost everybody loves a baby. Well, it's innocent, brings out the innocent part of you and it's real, but it's also temporary. That's different than awareness and commitment, which is family love, friendship love, mankind love, and self-love. And again, self-love is the most critical part of this whole thing because it's hard to love other people if you don't love yourself. Am I saying this correctly, Dr. Arya? You know what, David? It's it's uh, two things came to mind when you mentioned this. This is a common thing I come across with my patients. I love how you said that. Folks, one of the things that um, David said that really triggered something in me that that when you truly do not have the self-love within you or practice it or really have it as a main skill, a lifestyle, it is truly hard to have that genuine love. I, I do agree that because often that may come across as pleasing and appeasing, which is what I call a trauma response. So I love you because I'm in fear that I need, uh, it's based on obligation, based on fear, based on, you know, what will you think of me? So, and sometimes we love from a place where I want you to know that I'm a good person. So what, what David and I are talking about here is this, is we're talking about the self-love, which we'll get a, a little bit into, which we call self-compassion. But David, another thing I wanted that, to mention based on what you just said in your comments there is this, you know, one of the things with my patients, they've told me this, I never really thought about this until the last uh, five years here. When people receive love or from someone, they seem to get activated. There's a, there's a defense mechanism that comes up. That vulnerability, which we'll talk a little bit about um, as we kind of unpackage this, that vulnerability does not seem to happen, check this out, with animals. And very often it's because animals don't need nothing from you. They don't expect anything. They don't demand anything. They just love. Um, and one of my patients, the really cute, pointed out, and uh, we both have dogs. Uh, I know David has a cat, but watch this. So one of the cool things my patient taught me was that, hey, did you know dog is spelled um, God backwards? And so now when I look at my dog, I'm like, oh, God, be super nice to this dog. <laughs> oh, but the point here is that it's it's animals are unconditional. And I think animals are the best form of unconditional love. And they do help with chronic pain and medical conditions. Right. But also... It's by direction because, okay, so you know that I'm not a huge fan of self-love. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to say that tongue-in-cheek, but here's what I mean. Okay, so we spend this time trying to love ourselves. And so we create this mental construct. We try to nurture ourselves and love ourselves. But again, this unconscious reaction called anxiety and anger, which are physiological states, are a million times stronger than this mental construct. 
So to me, it's almost impossible to generate self-love to this image of who you are. So to me, the way you generate self-love is that, and this is why it's bi-directional, you generate love for your family, you generate love for your friends, you generate love for mankind. So the way, because we project our own consciousness under other people, but it also gets projected back to us. So to me, awareness is dissolution of the ego, different topic, I agree. But as you just learn to be and just watch yourself, and again, Demelo talks about just awareness. So you become aware you're connected to this person. So you start connecting to yourself. You also become aware you're critical of this person, which means you've disconnected from yourself. And so the bottom line is the only, to me, the way you nurture self-love, which again, I do think is the most important, but I think you have to be really careful to try to generate self-love instead of just being a loving person. You learn to love yourself. Yeah. And what David is speaking about is um, what we, in my world, we call values. Values are not moral righteousness or things you have to have. It's within you. And so in the psychotherapy world, we feel that love is within us and uh, as part of a human spirit. And it's really important. I, I like what David said on a few things there, David. Um, I, I do agree that first to be aware. And what science also points out is this, is that when we can just show up with acceptance, with a sense of presence, right? Being in that moment as it is, um, with non-judgment, so being being accepting, being non-judgmental, it seems to unlock the physiology and the psychology of love. So again, we're talking about discussing your pain, complaining, gossiping, those types of things, which are not love. Yeah, you're not aware, you've lost awareness of your own needs. You've lost awareness of other people's needs. So it seems like you're having your needs missed by complaining. But all you're really doing is just jumping to the part of the brain that has pain circuits. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, so again, let's review the five kinds of love. There's passionate love, and then there's family love, friendship love, and mankind love. And so I think that's, and then self-love. So I think that you nurture self-love by family love, friendship love. And then, you know, eventually mankind love comes into play. But let's just talk about love as a modulator of pain. Yeah. You want to discuss that, Mario? If, if, um, when we were doing this research topic here and we were checking things out, it's a really interesting study that I came across um, done by Stanford. Stanford does some cool studies with brains. Uh, I love the brain and love things that they put out. So here's what they did. Researchers were trying to tease apart the reward system when it comes to pain, love, and how it influences pain. So what they found out was that the old system within us, that the most primitive part of our brain um, that involved the dopamine, um, which is basically very influential to learning, emotional learning to reward and even motivation. So it's in the front part of the brain. Um, and it's located um, in the nucleus incumbents. Just think of the front part um, of the um, garage, if you will, of your house. And so one of the key things they found out that when people experience a sense of love that's induced in them, it becomes analgesic in that they found that when people experience love, genuine love, feels accepted. And in, in fact, I want to go push what the study found was this romantic love, this high that we get from maybe drugs or opioids, it is identical to love. And so what the researcher said is basically that this tells us that um, we don't have to rely on drugs for pain relief, 
But it also does uh, provide a caveat. It doesn't mean that you, you know, forego everything else. They're still studying it, but what we can know, what we do know with brain studies right now is that people feel intense rewards without the side effects from drugs when they experience love and its pain relieving effects are very powerful. So I'm going to throw a massive curveball at everybody right now. <laughs> you may not agree with this. You may want to even delete this podcast before it's all over, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. So Dr. Lester gave us a talk on, um, rewards and addictions versus happiness mm. and so the bottom line is dopamine is a reward drug but it's also an addiction drug yep. so right here it's right here so so we, there's a song i happen to like the song um i'm addicted to love but see that's where the positive transference come in place you get this massive rush of dopamine and this is and so he points out dopamine is an addiction it's with cell phones bipolar it we get addicted to cell phones we get addicted to opioids we get addicted to love where serotonin is the happiness drug. And so that's, so with family love and friendship love and mankind love, that's more enduring long-term serotonin part of the brain. And the passionate love is what gets us in trouble because we become addicted to it. So I agree with you hundred percent that the action of actually connecting somebody at that level is a very powerful experience. It's important, but to understand your brain's a little bit offline. You're in addiction mode. And so that's where, I get upset because these positive transferences will actually disrupt families because all of a sudden a better choice comes along and bam, you're off to the races because you're in love. Well, the research also shows it lasts for two or three years, the dopamine part of it, and this, it sort of fades off. So then are you committed to this person or not? And we're not, I'm not recommending staying, staying in a bad relationship at all. I mean, I, a lot of us have been divorced. I get it. Um, I actually my own share credit for the divorce or blame, we wouldn't want to call it. But that's, that's one of my key issues here is that I'm also complaining and being in pain has a dopamine effect too. There's a lot of power in pain. So that's where it's really critical to me with this word love is that um, DeMille talks about this really clearly. I actually read it this morning is that when what breaks up love is attachment and he defines attachment as something that feels good, you want more of it. If something feels bad, you want less of it. So we get attached to things around us to make ourselves feel better. The problem with passionate love is that it is addicting. It's wonderful. It's an important part of life. And it does feel that need that actually temporarily solves the pain. Well, a better way to do is actually learn to solve your pain and then honor yourself and honor your family with long-term serotonin type drugs. So, so sorry, Les. Yeah, no, 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 I think it's just like I said, we welcome uh, David. I love you as you are. So, <laughs> so oh, did I, oh, all right, that, that's truly a friendship love because there's no question <laughs> in this one. There's, there's very few rewards for being my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but but the points are well taken. And um, what we do want to emphasize is that, you know, this will mean different things to other folks, but we just wanted to emphasize that. And this segment part is that love is a modulator of pain, whether it's an addiction or not, whether it's passionate love or not, it does have powerful effects. One of the things I wanted to comment to the audience and David here is that just let's walk through this. This is taken by, um, I've taken this concept from Judson Brewer, uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, who is was at Yale uh, School of Medicine, now at Brown University, and um, has the mindfulness center there. His brain studies, he's a, he's a psychiatrist and uh, a scientist. 
and a big time practitioner of meditation. And he's done studies and I like his concepts. Let me explain based on the reward center. We're talking about love as a modulator of pain and whatever form it is. Let's kind of walk through this. And David had talked about the addiction part and the reward part. So let's break it down into three steps. When you get triggered, whether by something positive or not, it actually activates certain behaviors in us. So think of TBR, Tom, think of boy, think of R as, you know, like I said, reward. So trigger, behavior, reward. So when you get triggered, good or bad, it activates certain behaviors in our neurocircuitry. So basically, it activates certain parts. So watch this. So if you feel very intense about, if you if you basically feel a physical sensation in your body, that's the trigger. Okay? It doesn't matter what. So it's something very negative. The behavior gets activated in the brain. And watch this. When you fear and you activate the fear centers of your brain, because maybe you're kind of complaining about it, you're trying to figure out how to get rid of it. What that does is that that those thoughts, emotions, and behaviors we engage in, that those behaviors actually gets act it actually activates the front part of your brain called the nucleus incumbent, which activates the dopamine. So let's walk through this. You have a negative sensation, that's the trigger. When whatever behaviors we do or don't do activates some of the primitive parts of the brain. And so when you do avoidance of your pain, for example, it actually reinforces that behavior, which triggers the dopamine. Remember, dopamine has to do with emotional learning and reward and motivation. So whatever you practice, we get better at. Let's take this a, a, a different flip. You experience something positive um, or something negative. Uh, let's take another negative part and take something negative and you bring curiosity you bring a sense of love and acceptance as it is. The sensation, that person, the situation doesn't matter, but you, you relate to it differently. And in this topic, we're relating, we're calling it love. When you show up with a sense of compassion or love or kindness, that triggers the dopamine part of your brain. So trigger, behavior, reward. This is the tricyclic that actually seems to motivate us to either move towards things that are pleasant or unpleasant, so he studied this and he found out that whatever you do or don't do, it activates certain parts of your brain, specifically in the nucleus incumbent. This is why whatever we practice, good or bad, ugly or funny, we become better at. So exactly. I mean, with neuroplasticity, I mean, there's two parts of this. You have your body's physiology and reaction. So we've talked about this, that love is basically a physiological state. So you feel safe, you feel connected, you connect with yourself, connect with other people. Anytime you're anxious or angry or frustrated, you've actually cut that connection. So again, DeMello defines love as awareness. And awareness means being vulnerable. And as you point out also today is that in the animal kingdom, there's no rewards for being vulnerable. If you're vulnerable in nature, you don't survive. Yeah. Same thing with human beings. Physically, if you're vulnerable in doing things that are very dangerous, you're not going to survive. The problem is emotions are processed the same way. So if you're emotionally vulnerable, there's a lot, there's, in, you have to learn how to, how to say this clearly is that 
being vulnerable is the essence of relationships. That's how we survive, yet there's not a lot of rewards for being vulnerable in nature. Right. Since emotional pain is processed in a similar part of the brain as physical pain, then there's not a lot of rewards for being emotionally vulnerable. That's why you have to train yourself to allow yourself to be emotionally vulnerable. It sort of is a very huge catch-22. So you want to explain that, Dr. Arya? Did, did yeah. I make that clear? It's, it's a little tricky because, again, no rewards in nature for being physically vulnerable. No rewards in human survival or being physically vulnerable, yet emotions are processed as physical pain. Uh, Dr. Eisenberger showed this out of UCLA. And so we need emotional vulnerability to have relationships, yet we all know we all get emotionally abused in different ways, not always on purpose by any means. So that's tricky in the human experience that we need to be vulnerable to have relationships, but yet there's not a lot of rewards for being vulnerable it pretends that trust is actually um, broken. Yeah. So what 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 that is a, a part of what we wanted to talk about, David. So we might as well just kind of go into it. The loss of love when we feel rejected, it actually does hurt. Right. And, uh, and then that's what David is referring to um, is that uh, DeWall and um, Dr. Eisenberg, Dr. DeWall and Dr. Eisenberg and the colleagues did study that. And they asked this question, if you are socially rejected uh, or there's social rejection um, aches like physical pain and uh, can it be treated like physical pain? So when you get, when there's a love loss and what they found out in this brain study is that exactly what David just um, uh, summarized is that the brain really does not differentiate between emotional pain and physical pain. We do. Here's what they found out. They did something interesting. And in um, Eisenberg's study, they actually, they assigned volunteers to take, David, um, caveat here, you're the physician on board. Uh, we need to make sure that people do not take, uh, you know, do this. But here's what they did. They, they found people who were basically heartbroken and were rejected socially. And they asked them to take uh, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol um, that's over the counter. And uh, for daily for three weeks, they found that the people who were socially rejected or were feeling the parts of the brain that was, you know, emotionally feeling emotionally hurt um, and also report physical pain. So the group members in the study felt rejected. They noticed that in the brain, they, the centers, the emotional pain and physical pain shared the same circuitry. So you couldn't quite tell whether it was physical or emotional. Here's the interesting thing is the people that took the Tylenol compared to the uh, comparison group for the emotional pain actually got better. So the study was really intriguing. I think it's intriguing that the researchers kind of concluded and alluded to the fact that the brain does not differentiate it because when someone felt socially rejected, emotionally rejected and hurt, when they actually took Tylenol, they felt better. So they showed that in the brain studies, the reality is this, we humans love to segregate, discriminate, separate. We love to do all that crap. The reality is this, we're more alike than not. And so when emotions and physical pain come to play, they're of the same pantry, different shelves perhaps. And this is the part we wanna know. So when we have loss of love, loneliness, when people are loving us the way we wanna be loved, we feel judged by people. This actually modulates pain. Exactly. I mean, again, this topic goes super deep because we're getting, we're talking about the family and pain. We're talking about complaining about your pain. We're talking about sharing experiences together, both negative and positive. And that social connection is a hugely positive healing factor. 
And so when you're rejected, I mean, in primitive societies, the way they punish people is they ostracize them. And people would list, they would die. I mean, people ostracized for a period of time, they wouldn't survive. And then it's also been shown that people have more of a fear of being isolated than they actually do. They, they fear dying alone more than they fear dying. So yeah. social isolation is brutal. And then in chronic pain, unfortunately, as you complain about your pain, you push your framework away. Your close friends, your family, your colleagues get pushed away. So where you need the support, you're actually pushing it away, which is a huge problem. So social connection is a huge need. And I think we cover one more little topic because you pointed out about the oxytocin system, which is a different system than dopamine and serotonin. So again, with dopamine and serotonin, that's tricky because we do want rewards, but also can foster attachment, which can be sort of deadly. Serotonin is happiness, which is a more sustainable chemical. And that's where family love and personal love and self-love kind of plays that long-term commitment to yourself and people around you. So when you're discussing your pain, you're meeting your needs only, you're reinforcing circuits that are negative, and then you've you've pushed away your support system. And I talked to Dr. Sue Carter yesterday on my podcast, who is the person who brought oxytocin into awareness. She is amazing. So Leslie, you want to discuss the oxytocin system as far as social connection? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, hereafter, David and I want to call it the love brain, like the love train. All right, that was bad. (laughs) (laughs) That was, uh, you're usually better than that. I'm sort of disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) The naughtiness is is coming out of me. So listen, folks, the love brain, what is it? So basically, we've come to realize and we've noticed in several studies that we actually kind of know a little bit about where it happens in the brain and specifically for those of you want to geek out with me you could write these down so they've identified several different parts but i'm just going to focus on, on a couple and then talk about oxytocin and vasopressin um so the neural mechanism of romantic love or just love in general is often identified in the right tegmental area or the right caudate nucleus And these are two areas known uh, to be involved with rewards and uh, motivation. Basically, think of it as the front part of the brain that whenever you do something, you get rewarded. You get a dopamine hit, and that's the addiction. So when you're addicted to avoiding pain and emotions and rejections and vulnerability, we'll get better at avoiding things, sensations, thoughts, and emotions, and even people and situations. But if you learn how to, as David said, become aware of how you're relating to the world and what you're doing, you can really activate certain parts of your brain and improve yourself. Let's get into it a little bit more. There are two specific brain chemicals that um, Sue Carter, who is world-renowned, and by the way, side note, uh, Sue Carter, um, that's Stephen Forges' wife, Dr. Sue Carter, world-renowned, as David said, um, for oxytocin. She speaks about oxytocin and vasopressin as the prominent hormones implicated in bonding. So when we feel connected to something, we have these hormones inside of us that seem to be activating and activate certain brain ports, the reward system. So here's what here's what we found out and what we know about this is that it is really important for you to understand this is to be able to have acceptability of love, to be able to generate it, is we need to be able to feel safe within ourselves and also with whomever we're connecting with. And, uh, and Sue Carter has spoken about this, and Porges has really emphasized this, that it is really, really very difficult to feel love or even to give love when we don't feel safe. So love is a social neurobiological engagement 
that is imperative right. to healing. And put differently, David, as we speak, and I'll hand the mic back to you here, is to put differently is it's difficult to heal when we do not feel safe and loved and connected. Yeah, just remind you, Dr. Arya, you're the psychologist, and you're supposed to be listening to me. <laughs> I think I've done a pretty good job so far. <laughs> no, I mean, he's really a lot more aware of this than I am, but um, I'm just teasing it. But, but what Sukhar pointed out yesterday, which is really important, is that for a survival mechanism, children of humans or mammals compared to reptiles, I mean, we're not, she pointed out, we're not born in an egg. We need to be nurtured and safe. So there has to be some motivation for the mother to give up a big part of her life and father to raise this child to the point where this kid is safe. Same thing with all mammals. So it turns out that oxytocin is also present in fathers and mothers. Oxytocin is a drug that bonds the mother to the child. And so that bond is really critical. So oxytocin is also very anti-inflammatory, decreases anxiety reduces stress and bonding. And I noticed years ago in my clinic that a big part of people's healing, and again, Les and I both see people go pain-free all the time. But a big part of it that I, I took note of pretty early is that reconnecting with friends and family was a major part of healing. I'm going, huh. But again, you have this catch-22 when you're in pain, especially isolated, you're complaining a lot, pushing people away. People get very isolated, even within a family, they get isolated. Yeah. It doesn't matter what circle of friends they're in, so, yeah. of course, you get physically isolated also towards the end of the game. But I think social isolation is sort of the norm if you're suffering from severe chronic pain. Yeah. I did it. I in When I was in chronic pain, social isolation was, I'm a pretty social guy, but I became incredibly isolated. Even with amongst people, I felt isolated. And I would say that social isolation was maybe one of the worst parts of the entire ordeal. It was so bad. It was crushing. So we covered a lot of material, and I think we're going to do this probably in two parts less to finish this podcast up, because there are some solutions to this. But I think what I like to summarize, and you can finish my summary here, is that, okay, so you're, there's different kinds of love. There's passionate love, family love, friendship love, mankind, and self-love. And when you're in pain, um, all these things sort of disappear. And love is a neurochemical state. And you nurture self-love by learning how to love other people and vice versa. The passionate love is important, but again, it's an addiction component to that. Just like pain itself has an addiction component to it. So that part gets a little bit tricky. But in general, deep social connection is healing. And when you're and but two things happen when you're in deep chronic pain. First of all, you don't have the energy to reach out. You just don't feel like doing it, number one. Second of all, in, you're in pain, you're trapped and you're angry and frustrated. So of course you're going to complain about it. So then that support system that you need in his healing gets pushed away. So you have a horrible vicious cycle going. So I think we'll do less. Um, I'll let you really summarize what we just said. But love is a chemical state. And there's a bunch of tools and way of reversing the process. That's why you can't just go from chronic pain to love without some steps in between. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Um, so that's my summary. Dr. Yeah. Anything, any dimensions you'd like to add to the summary? Yeah, I, I think that's very nicely done. You're right. There are many dimensions. It's a very complex topic. And let alone we, we just married love and pain. Talk about the complexity of two power couples, right? So um, And so what we want to do here is remember that as, I, as we leave you today, I'm hoping that you will find that this podcast is somewhat helpful with the emphasis of this. 
that part of healing does require that sense of safety and connection, as David said. And when you're feeling, when you're able to play and feel safe and connected, it promotes the nervous system to heal. So it's really important. So it's not just just love, but love includes the ability to connect to and to be aware, as David said, that you know it's not one-sided, it's a it's it's bidirectional. So remember, love modulates pain. And more importantly, when you feel safe, it is helpful to the healing system when it comes to chronic medical conditions and pain. Until next time, folks. We thank you for spending time with us. And Dr. Hanscom, always a pleasure. Lots of love to you, man. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, have a great day. Take care, folks. David and Les would love to hear from you about today's podcast and any ideas for future topics. You can email them at david-les at dynamichealingpodcast.com. That's david-les at dynamichealingpodcast.com. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.